From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Most people who get COVID-19 recover in two weeks, but some patients are still wrestling with symptoms six months later. I have a constant cough, brain fog. I'm in constant pain. Then will we taste wildfire smoke in the wine made from this year's crop of Colorado grapes? Plus, it's easy to feel stuck scrolling through social media. In the new documentary, The Social Dilemma, architects of social media platforms say the content is tailored to your preferences. That makes it addictive by design. We're being fed these things that are a mirrored reflection of ourselves. And in many cases, it's our weakest vulnerabilities. A conversation with Boulder director Jeff Orlovsky about what he calls a climate change of culture. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. The World Health Organization estimates that 80 percent of COVID-19 infections are mild or asymptomatic and that patients generally recover after two weeks. But some patients whose cases were considered mild still have muscle aches, fatigue, fevers and coughs months later. We're going to explore this today, starting with CPR's Claire Cleveland. Malia Anderson first went to the hospital with severe flu-like symptoms in March. felt like there was somebody pushing a pike into the back of my head. She couldn't breathe, she was coughing, and the symptoms worried her and her partner Randy. At the hospital, she was told it was probably COVID-19, but they couldn't test her. She was sent home. She would return to the hospital two more times with more symptoms. At one point, she thought she was having a stroke felt like I had an explosion of ice water up my spine and into my head and a massive headache. And I tried to go to the bathroom and my feet wouldn't work. My, my limbs wouldn't work. And I was afraid I was having a stroke. So I had my partner take me to the hospital. They um, did a scan of my brain and said, we don't know what it was, but it wasn't a stroke. Go home. Six months later, and Anderson is still struggling. She's not alone. Back pain. Body aches. Overwhelming fatigue. Shortness of breath. Intense soreness. It's not like the muscle aches that you get with the flu. Fever is just outright debilitating. Of course, I'm exhausted. People across the country are reporting weeks and months of these lingering symptoms. They are known as long haulers. Their experience is just one more thing doctors and researchers don't understand about the virus. In Colorado, patients don't know where to turn. Anderson was told she has anxiety and was prescribed anti-anxiety medication. It didn't help. But Dr. Robert Lamb in Colorado Springs has begun to track how many of his patients might be affected. He and his team of medical students are surveying scores of patients about the impact COVID-19 has had on their health. Our initial results show that up to a fourth of patients we're still having lingering symptoms of COVID. And so that was something that we didn't expect, but we continue to follow those patients to see how they're doing towards the recovery. We are starting to see hints and concerns that there is probably some potential long-term lung damage as we're not seeing patients recover completely. Even nationally, there is no centralized COVID-19 patient database that allows doctors to use those numbers to make estimates. But it's likely that there are many, many patients. One Facebook group called Survivor Corps has just over 100,000 members. That's one place that Ty Godwin has turned for information about his symptoms. 
Godwin, who lives in Denver, has been to the doctor more than 40 times since January. I think people have figured out to not ask me, are you feeling better today? There are no good days. There are there are good hours in the day. Typically, mornings are, are, are pretty decent. But, you know, yesterday I had a fever at 1030 in the morning. It, 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 there was a time when uh, I call it the witching hour where more debilitating fatigue would kick in at the end of my business day. But sometimes that creeps in during the day. Godwin's situation is especially complicated. His doctors are confident he had the virus, but he was never given a PCR test, and his antibody tests have come back negative. That's not uncommon, particularly given the lack of tests early on and continued issues with reliability. Dr. Nir Goldstein at National Jewish has seen dozens of patients with lingering symptoms. He says it's frustrating for doctors to treat them. So uh, when you've done your traditional testing and you've looked at CAT scans and functional tests and lip work that and everything is normal, it doesn't look like there's anything to fix. And you don't know how to fix it. And so we can at least offer these patients some guidance and at least make them feel like they're not alone and they're not they're crazy. Researchers think the symptoms may have to do with the massive immune response the virus can cause. But without any treatment sorted, all doctors and patients can do is treat the symptoms and wait for answers. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. Joining us on the show today is Tara Schumacher. She's had COVID-19 symptoms since mid-March when she first came down with the virus. Tara, welcome. Hi. And Dr. Robert Lamb, who works with the UC Health Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs. Dr. Lamb, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And Robert, you started with a project with your medical students to survey patients who had COVID-19 about how they were faring. When did you and your team first start to notice long hauler symptoms? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the project started as a transition of care project, and we started it right at the rise of COVID-19. And we interviewed basically every patient that uh, was consented to talk to us that had been hospitalized uh, for specifically for COVID-19 and many of the patients that came to the emergency department. And as we started to look at the data, we noticed that about a fourth of the patients that we were seeing were continuing to have symptoms. And so we made a decision that we would continue to follow them either until their symptoms plateaued or until they had resolution of symptoms. And a fourth is a lot of patients. So tell me a little bit more about the prevalence of long haulers. Well, I think that's one of the areas that we're still learning about because COVID-19 is indeed still a very mysterious illness. Um, You know, our study, we were seeing around 25% of the patients that we were interviewing that were still having symptoms, but I've seen other studies that show much higher rates. And I think part of it depends on some of the pre-existing conditions for the patient, but COVID is very mysterious in the sense that sometimes patients don't have a lot of pre-existing conditions, but still have significant symptoms. So I think that's an area that we're still learning about. And Tara, you're a landscape photographer. You run an Airbnb out of your home in Fort Collins. What was life like before COVID-19? Um, I was very active. Um, I was able to hike and backpack and be, you know, in the backcountry with no problem, hike, you know, miles and miles. And um, and <laughs> it's not that way anymore. Yeah, you got sick in March. What were those first few days like? Um, at first, I think like lots of folks, I just thought it was, you know, allergies or, you know, is kind of making excuses or, you know, 
gosh, I'm just a little extra tired today. Um, and then it was, a, you know, hitting a brick wall. Um, you know, it, it was like being hit with a, a baseball bat, but by a whole baseball team. And then even as that's going on, I imagine you thought that this would be all over by April for you, that you'd be recovered. When did it become clear that you just weren't getting better? So I went through the, you know, the ups and downs of the illness for um, a solid two months. And then there was this relief when I felt better. And then it, it was like it was starting over again with new symptoms. And, you know, I contacted my doctor. I'm like, you know, I had these hypothyroid symptoms. My hair's falling out. I, you know, I'd, I'd, all of these symptoms I thought were hypothyroid symptoms. And I found survivor core and holy cow, I'd, all of these things I started relating with post COVID. And I checked in with my doctor mid July and it's like a whole new ride <laughs> with COVID. And Survivor um, and Corps is a Facebook group. Yes, Survivor Corps, the Facebook group. So it, it's 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 a whole different version of COVID now. So it, my thyroid levels came back completely normal. It, it's a totally different version of COVID now. Mm. And, and tell me a little bit more about what your symptoms are now. How it feels like a completely different disease. Well, I'd, I was just diagnosed with pneumonia. Um, with post-COVID pneumonia, which it's crazy that I've had it this long and I have pneumonia now, or just learned that I had pneumonia now. Um, so I I don't know if you can hear, but I'm short of breath at the moment, and I'm sitting in a chair, uh, not doing anything. Um, I have a constant cough. Um, I'm in constant pain, um, whether it's joint pain, muscle pain, constant headaches, the other issues, uh, brain fog, um, and that manifests in lots of different ways. Um, memory issues are, you know, pretty basic, but inability to concentrate, um, inability to focus, learning new tasks, um, really frustrating. I'd, I almost have to look at a list right now. To yeah, <laughs> it's so many months that you've been dealing with this. Now, you mentioned that long haulers group, the community on Facebook, Survivors Corps. Tell me what the group has meant to you over the last few months, Tara. The biggest thing was kind of some validation of my post-COVID symptoms. Um, like I said, I, I thought everything I was experiencing was uh, hypothyroidism. And then um, I, I really realized that I was experiencing post-COVID symptoms um, and just feeling part of a community that was experiencing the same things. Um, and it was also, um, I, I have a background in molecular biology, so um, it was another resource to find literature that was just not mainstream media. So some of the, the literature that I was not seeing, um, just that I was searching for. So some of the nature and science and JAMA stories um, that I was not coming across, that was really helpful. And there are a lot of misconceptions about what it's like to have COVID-19. Tara, what do you wish that people understood about it? <laughs> um, I have a lot to say about that. Um, that it's real. Uh, that, you know, every time that I see someone out and about without a mask, um, it, it's a huge affront to those of us who, have, who are currently experiencing the illness, um, who have suffered through the illness, 
Um, it's a huge insult to, you know, the 190,000 people who have died from COVID, um, the, the anti-maskers and the people who are spreading misinformation about it, they are, they're doing a huge disservice to those of us who are still suffering Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And Dr. Lamb, how do Tara's experiences compare with what you're hearing from other patients? I will say that we have heard other patients that have similar symptoms. And the the challenge with COVID-19 is that I think that we have the whole spectrum from patients that start with very mild symptoms to patients that have symptoms that look like a heart attack or a stroke. And so COVID-19 is a significant challenge in that way. But we, we have heard from the patients that we've been interviewing um, uh, some similar symptoms, some similar constellation symptoms to what Tara's been experiencing. And she described brain fog. Robert, can you shed some light on what might be happening with a patient with brain fog related to COVID-19? That's a great question. And I think that's one that we're still learning about. In fact, during the height of COVID-19, a lot of neurologic consultations were happening for patients that were struggling to have problems with cognition. And it was thought and hoped that a lot of it would resolve as the virus itself resolves. We're hearing that from other patients that still have some lingering symptoms. So I don't think we completely understand why. Um, COVID-19, like other virus symptoms, like other viruses, can sometimes have symptoms that uh, pop up in surprising ways. I'll give you a couple examples. For, uh, during the height of COVID-19, we actually considered COVID for any patient that had a stroke because it can cause a vasculitis in some patients that looks like a stroke. Same thing for patients that were having heart attacks. We had to consider could this be COVID-19 for patients that are having heart attacks? And certainly any patient that came in to the emergency department with a cardiac arrest, we had to think, could this be COVID-related? Because there's such this wide spectrum of symptoms that can happen. Um, it's kind of interesting the way that viruses sometimes affect our bodies. And it's an area that we're still learning about. But I don't know if we know exactly why patients experience some of the cognitive problems that they still have. It's, it's one that we're, because this is such a, a new novel virus, a new experience, I think the best that we can do is listen to our patients to try to understand how we can best treat them and address the, their symptoms going forward. And for the folks that you're studying in the long haul group, they're not still testing positive for COVID-19, right? That's correct. Most of them don't continue. To, we don't continue to give them a test unless they have a new or recent exposure. But if anything, patients that have had COVID-19 are in a better position because most of them have antibodies. Um, so one of the things we actually asked all the patients is if they're interested in our, the convalescent plasma program, which allows them to donate their antibodies and plasma to other patients that are experiencing life-threatening symptoms of COVID. So if anything, patients that have had COVID-19 are actually in a better position to not be reinfected. But in literature, we have seen some early patients that have been tested positive a second time. Um, and that's one of the, the mysteries of COVID-19 is how could that happen? So there's a lot that we're still learning, and it's clear that even when people are testing negative, some people are still feeling the effects. Is there any indication why some people take so much longer to heal? I think a lot of it has to do with um, your pre-existing comorbidities. So if you have significant existing pre-existing medical conditions, um, it, it, it pretends that you will likely have a more rockier course and, and have higher de- degrees of symptoms and a longer recovery. Um, but unfortunately, some patients that don't have a lot of pre-existing conditions are still experiencing symptoms, and that's part of the mystery of the disease. Um, so if you have had or had pre-existing medical conditions before you became ill, and some of, we saw that some of the, the first patients that we studied were patients that were older, 
And so they, they tended to have more pre-existing conditions. They had less physical reserve to combat the virus. And so we weren't surprised initially that they were having a harder time. But then we're still seeing with patients that didn't have a lot of comorbidities. And so that's been part of the learning process for this disease, pro, uh, disease as well. And Tara, you're only 47. I don't want to pry, but do you have a pre-existing condition that puts you at higher risk? Nothing that would make um, COVID more serious for me. Um, like I said, hypothyroidism. Um, I have had Lyme disease for the past couple of years. Um, which <laughs> makes me kind of a meme for right now. Uh, corona with Lyme, which is a little amusing. Funny, but not funny. <laughs> um, but that that should not make uh, COVID any more serious for me. And Robert, many patients who have struggled feel that it's hard to be understood by family, friends, and even doctors. What do you recommend for patients who are still struggling with lingering symptoms but aren't getting help from their doctors? You know, that's a great question. Um, I think that at other times when, you know, I, I wish we had more testing. I certainly wish we had better treatment as well. And this is one of those times when, because we're still understanding, I think the role of our, us as physicians and caregivers is to listen to our patients um, and to listen to their stories because we don't have all the tests that we need. We don't even really understand this disease completely. Um, and so I think if people really are experiencing difficulty with communicating that to their physician. I think it's okay to go to other specialists related to your symptoms because we're all learning about this disease together. Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining us. And Tara, thank you for sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Tara Schumacher has had COVID symptoms since mid-March. Dr. Robert Lamb works at UC Health Memorial Hospital in Colorado Springs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. When the Grizzly Creek Fire tore through Glenwood Canyon last month, it closed I-70 for two weeks, and the impacts will continue for years to come. CPR's Dan Boyce reports. Summer 2020 was going gangbusters for Steve Nislanik. Prior to the canyon closing, it was the best five weeks we ever had. He owns an Indian restaurant called Masala and Curry in Glenwood Springs. Tourists were pouring over the Continental Divide from the Front Range. Tourists looking for that COVID summer staycation, And they were using this area's biggest and really its only major transportation artery, Interstate 70. And then when the interstate closed, it was like none. It was the Grizzly Creek wildfire burning through and closing nearby Glenwood Canyon for two weeks. Paul Chanowski directs the environmental design program at CU Boulder. He says the dramatic and narrow corridor already has its share of dangers. These great cliffs, you know, steep grades... These are perfect areas where we could have risk from roads being closed due to boulders coming down. Or landslides, or flash floods, or avalanches, all kinds of stuff regularly closes the canyon for hours at a time. Okay, fine, but we gotta get across the mountains, right? Janowski says, sure, trouble is, when these roads were built, engineers were using their perception of the local environment at the time 
to judge risk factors. The issue with climate change is all of these factors are changing. Chanowski helped author the transportation sector chapter of the most recent national climate assessment. It says increased drought and heat, coastal flooding and more heavy rain events. All of it will decrease the reliability of the nation's travel infrastructure and increase the cost to maintain it. Even still, a month after reopening, there's a section of Glenwood Canyon reduced to one lane of traffic each way. And making that drive, what you notice is so much of it is black and charred. You can see right behind you that the fire came right up to the road. A whole motorcade of federal, state, and local leaders recently toured the destruction left by the blaze. Colorado Department of Transportation Director Shoshana Liu says with the stabilizing vegetation now gone from the cliff sides, this stretch will see problems for years. More rock slides, more avalanches, more closures. Lou wants the public to know her department has a team of geohazard experts. They know what to look for when a rock could be vulnerable, and they know how to kind of identify when we need to take rocks down in order to avoid them falling into the road. That team's going to have its hands full out here. Meanwhile, another U.S. Forest Service crew has started looking into other measures, including the potential for revegetation. Examine just this most recent I-70 closure, and you quickly see cascading consequences, far beyond Glenwood Springs having fewer summer tourists. Greg Fulton runs a Colorado trade group focused on the trucking industry. A lot of time we look at uh, I-70 as almost our own little, you know, neighborhood street sometimes. Of course it isn't, though. Businesses and consumers throughout the country get affected when there's any significant closure of this highway. You see, there just aren't that many reliable ways for a semi-truck to get over the Rocky Mountains. Fulton says the Colorado options besides I-70? They're twisting and um, we don't have as much in the way of passing lanes, nor is there any truck parking there. More mileage, more money, more time. Regional truckers will often opt to bypass the state entirely during an I-70 closure. And 70 isn't the only Colorado highway to close for natural disasters in the last decade. Other wildfires closed roads to places like Woodland Park and the San Luis Valley. 2013 flooding washed out many mountain routes. In March 2019, a bomb cyclone stranded motorists on I-25. At this point, scientists are comfortable saying the warming climate is exacerbating these events. Thanks, everybody. I just, uh... Colorado Senator Michael Bennett was on that Glenwood Canyon fire tour, the one with all the government leaders. He paints what happened here as an opportunity. We need to put more people to work in our forest, doing the fire mitigation and the work that can be done to help prevent these fires from happening in the first place and make them easier to fight uh, when they happen. That could mean a lot of jobs in the rural West. Congress would have to pay for them, though. Meanwhile, looking at transportation spending, the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates there is already a $1.2 trillion gap in funding for travel infrastructure nationally, and that's before the impacts of climate change are taken into account. In Glenwood Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. 
The Grand Valley's grape crop escaped much of the freeze that killed off most of the peaches this spring, but grape growers and winemakers are now facing new harm from wildfire smoke. When heavy smoke settles over vines, as it did recently during the Pine Gulch fire, it can cause what's called smoke taint, and that can impact the taste of wine. Miranda Ulmer is a Colorado State University Extension Viticulturalist special, Viticulture Specialist. She's hoping for the best as she surveys vineyards around the Grand Valley for possible smoke damage. Welcome, Miranda. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here this morning. What exactly is smoke taint? Just as you mentioned, when the grapes are exposed to smoke, it can result in wines that have undesirable sensory characteristics. Um, Some people can describe them as being smoky, burnt, ashy, or medicinal. And what's actually happening is that volatile phenols or compounds are released when wood is burnt. And these compounds can be absorbed by the grapes themselves, and they actually bind to the sugars within the grapes. And then these compounds can break apart during fermentation or over time in the bottle or barrel and release those compounds, allowing that smoky flavor to be perceived. Wow. So it sounds like if they're binding to sugars, it's pretty inextricable once it happens. And that flavor, like you said, it can be described as medicinal or even barbecue-like or akin to licking a wet ashtray. Can wildfire smoke actually cause wine to just taste awful? Yes. I have not tasted uh, smoke-tainted wine personally, but I have a few colleagues who have. And I had a few colleagues that studied it as well. And just as you mentioned, I have heard it in the most extreme cases being described as licking an ashtray. Wow. The smoke in Grand Valley was bad enough in August that the nearby Grand Mesa was invisible. It wasn't possible to see from one end of a row of vines to the other. And that level of smoke and ash took grower Bruce Talbot of Talbot Farms by surprise. In my lifetime, we have never had this much smoke in the valley. We also had ash snow for a while. Uh, I believe the lower valley had a lot more than we did, but uh, it's kind of interesting to watch it snow when it's 90 degrees. The worst of the smoke hit in August when the grape harvest was just beginning. Is that a particularly bad time for smoke taint risk? Yes, and we are learning that there are a ton of factors that go into play when it comes to whether the grapes will be smoke tainted, but the growth stage of the vine is a very important one. And the closer you get to harvest, the higher the risk is for the exposed grapes to end up being tainted. And the Pine Gulch fire started burning on July 31st. And at the Colorado Orchard Mesa Research Center, we started harvesting that next week, the first week of August. Um, But we are still harvesting today and so maybe some of maybe it was only those early varieties that were affected and at the highest risk. And can farmers just pick a grape off the vine and taste the smoke taint to see if their crop has got it? Well that's a really interesting question. Um, It does bind to the sugars but some of those compounds that I mentioned that the, the smoke binds to the sugars they don't break apart until fermentation or in the bottle or the barrel. So unfortunately, just tasting the grape straight off the vine isn't a great way to tell if they're tainted. Well, so they might even need specialized lab equipment to determine if there's smoke damage. 
the Grand yes. Valley, the Grand Valley, it produces about 2,200 tons of grapes annually, and some of the crop is sold on the Front Range and in other states. Do you think that this threat of taint will affect those sales? As far as we know, preliminary test results have come back saying we are below the threshold where we should be concerned about smoke taint. So I am not aware of any growers that are not harvesting due to smoke taint or any wineries that have decided not to buy due to smoke taint. As far as I know, growers and wineries are continuing continuing as normal. We do plan to send in some tests both from CSU and Western Colorado Community College, but the lab that we use out in California is currently backlogged. But as I said, some growers have, were able to get some samples returned and they were below the threshold at which we would be concerned. And so I don't foresee any negative effects moving forward. And are there any steps that grape growers and winemakers can take to lessen the potential for smoke taint? Sure. Like Bruce mentioned, some ash was visible on the falling from the sky and on the grapes. So rinsing the grapes either before or after harvest has been recommended. Of course, that can't help with the compounds that have already bound to the sugars within the vine, but it can rid that ash from the exterior. Um, Also, there are some uh, options such as just simply excluding the leaf material after you're harvesting the grapes and beginning the process of making wine because the leaf material can also contain some of those smoke compounds. So keeping those out of the fruit juice and wine is beneficial. And then maintaining the integrity of the fruit when you're harvesting and reducing the amount of time the juice is in contact with the skin can also basically just help to reduce the amount of time those compounds can make its way into the juice and the resulting wine. And if the skins are such a big part of the smoke taint, does that mean that red wines are more susceptible than white wines? Definitely. It depends because when you're making red wines, you leave the juice on the skins to kind of take up more of the flavors from the skins. And that process is not done with white grapes. So yes, because the red grapes are in contact with the skins more often, they may be more susceptible to that taint flavor in the final wine. Miranda, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Miranda Ulmer is a CSU viticultural specialist working in the Grand Valley wine country. After the break, rethinking how people use social media. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. American society was forged in the same era that invented the very idea of race. So writes Nell Irvin Painter in her book, The History of White People. It's about the creation of whiteness and who's considered American. The Princeton historian and former director of its African-American studies program joins us for a special free event Tuesday evening, and you're invited. I'm Colorado Matters host Ryan Warner. Sign up at CPR.org slash turn the page. It's so easy to get lost doom scrolling. You check your phone when a text comes in, you open up Twitter, you see everything going wrong in the world, scroll down to refresh, someone's tweeted a new catastrophe or a hot take, you stay in the app, or maybe you flip over to Instagram, or Facebook, or Snapchat, or email, or TikTok. Each platform is designed to compete for your attention. Director Jeff Orlovsky of Boulder talks to the platform designers in his new Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
Before we talk about your film, tell me about your relationship with your phone. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, my relationship with my phone now is very, very different than it was two or three years ago. Um, I used to be a very, very Facebook addict, um, uh, social media in general, but Facebook was my, uh, my weak spot. And when we started working on this project, I really started to understand the dynamics that were at play and the, the mechanisms that were bringing me back to the platform. Um, this project has completely transformed my relationship with technology. And I'm, I'm so much more intentional around what is serving me like, when is it a tool for me? Um, when is it helping me versus when is it trying to get something from me? Now, a lot of people know you for your documentary. F- documentaries focused on climate change, like Chasing mm-hmm. Ice and Chasing Coral. Is the social dilemma a departure or is it also something of an existential threat? Yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't think of it as a departure at all. Um, we have been trying to spend our time in our filmmaking looking at big issues. Like, what are the biggest issues to humanity? What are the things that are a threat to society? Um, Climate change has always been at the top of that list for me and and still is. And then when we started learning about this problem, we started to realize that, wait, there is a climate change of culture that is happening invisibly because of the way our technology silos us and feeds us information. Um, And so this film, in many ways, I, I look at it as a foundational issue. It's an issue underlying all issues. It almost doesn't matter what you individually care about. This issue of how our technology has reshaped our information ecosystem is affecting the things that you care about. I love that description as a climate change of culture. I have to credit Tristan and Aza, uh, two of our subjects in the film who who uh, came up with that phrase. Yeah, it's really descriptive and it kind of captures the imagination. Now, in the documentary, you talk to some of the architects of Google, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, And they're all saying the same thing. Their programs are addictive by design. Why is that? So the interesting challenge here is that many years ago, these tech platforms were stuck trying to figure out a way to make money. And they wanted to offer these services for free. And the way that they could make money was through advertising. Now, you take that the innocent start and you extrapolate it out over many, many years and they've made better and better and better tools for advertisers. And how do we help advertisers sell more products? How do we help advertisers get to more people, get to the right people? They don't want to advertise to everybody. They want to advertise to a very specific person. The goal almost is to advertise just to one person. And in that process, these tools have gotten better and they've been able to figure out how to get people to stay on longer so we can show them more ads. The advertising business model incentivizes time. It incentivizes knowing you individually and feeding you information individually that keeps you spending more and more time. And the more data we have about you, the more we know who you are, what makes you tick, the better we can target you with ads. So this seemingly innocent model at the start has morphed into this addiction frame and it's morphed into this political polarization frame and it's morphed into having all these health impacts on mental health for teenagers. There are really many, many unintended consequences of that decision from many years ago. And I mean, on the one hand, it seems kind of nice. YouTube learns what kind of videos I like, but what's wrong with tailored content? Yeah, it seems so innocent. And this is one that's been a a huge struggle, I think, in in many ways, both to for me to understand what the challenge is and to communicate it. And for much content, I actually don't think there's a huge issue. There's there's it's not the advertisement itself that's the problem. If somebody's trying to sell me another pair of sneakers, like it's not the end of the world. 
where this gets really problematic in my mind um, is both a the the need to find what works on you to keep you on, right? So it's individualized addictiveness. Um, what works for me on Facebook is going to be something completely different that works for you on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or what have you. So we're being fed these things that are a mirrored reflection of ourselves. And in many cases, it's our weakest vulnerabilities. So it's the things that you maybe don't want to look at necessarily or aren't good for your mental health, but pull you in. But the second aspect to this question is really where this overlaps with news and information. The idea of customized news is what we've basically entered into, where you could enter into a political filter bubble, where you've been reinforced particular thoughts over however many years you've been on a particular platform. And now your thoughts are so completely different than somebody else who's getting a different political filter bubble. We've drifted away from a shared truth. We each live in our own 2.7 billion Truman shows out there. Everybody's in their own little political kind of insulated worldview and it's making it harder and harder for us to have shared conversation about things we disagree about. We're going to get into those silos in a moment, but we should say these technologies, they're so accessible because they don't cost anything to use. But the tech executives in the film that you interviewed, they say it's not that simple. It's a little even trite to say now, but because we don't pay for the products that we use, advertisers pay for the products that we use. Advertisers are the customers. We're the thing being sold. The classic saying is, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. That's Aza Raskin, who worked at Firefox and Mozilla Labs, and Tristan Harris, a former ethicist at Google. Jeff, if we're the product Google and Facebook are selling... Who wants to buy us? Um, Jaron Lanier in our film, he describes them as the manipulators. It's like this broader category, not just of advertisers, but of anybody who wants to do political manipulation as well, or anybody who wants to sell an idea to an audience. And it really is this um, tool that's designed to get a message into somebody's pocket, right? To surround somebody individually with their message. It, It always baffles me we don't pay anything for these products, right? So we can use Facebook or Twitter or YouTube and it doesn't cost us anything, yet they're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. And together they are the richest industry in the history of money. And if you just let that sink in for a second, it's like, how can it cost nothing and yet be worth so much? This manipulation backbone to their software is in fact the way they make the most money and you mentioned Jaron Lanier, and you describe him as the founding father of virtual reality. He actually says that advertisers are seeking to subtly change our behavior, not just get our attention. Um, so can you kind of tease that out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the idea of why would I want to spend money to put something in front of you? It's either to get you to click on that thing with potentially the hope of you buying that thing, or it's to change the way you think about this thing to maybe get you to act differently. So what we've seen with the previous election around how these platforms are being used for political manipulation, in some cases, it might just be to get you to not vote. And that was a very, very effective technique that was used by Russian like propagandists in the 2016 election. We're seeing many of those same patterns repeated this year in this upcoming election. Uh, we have a line from Roger McNamee in the film where he says, he, he basically says Russia didn't hack Facebook. They just used Facebook. 
And we're seeing that same pattern repeating now in 2020, where there's so much opportunity for political manipulation on these platforms. There was a bombshell whistleblower that came out just earlier this week, uh, a former Facebook employee that talked about international political manipulation at Facebook. And she was a middle manager employee and said she had such a crazy amount of power to determine you know, what kind of influence the president of Honduras could have over his people, um, seeing this in countless different countries. Um, you know, I'm, we're referencing Facebook quite a bit, but the same exact thing is happening at YouTube or TikTok or Twitter or Instagram. And The Social Dilemma, it's not a traditional documentary. Actors dramatize a middle schooler wrestling with body image because of social media, and high schoolers navigate screen time and even targeted misinformation like we're talking about. Why tie together those interviews with experts with a fictional subplot? Yeah, I really wanted the film to be as accessible as possible. And as we've spent a lot of our time talking with all of these experts, you know, some of it can get pretty dense. You know, I wanted my mom to be able to watch this movie and really enjoy it and embrace it. Um, we wanted to push ourselves creatively and figure out what's the creative way we could tell this story. I honestly don't know of any other films that have done quite what we did here in that there's a a parallel narrative. We're not using actors to recreate the story that the subjects are talking about. We have a parallel story unfolding. And as you learn from the experts how the technology works, we see that being revealed in the storyline. So our hope always was that this is increasing accessibility, making it available to a wider audience. And uh, we, we hope that works that way. And in that parallel storyline, we watch these kids and even their parents deal with the angst social media can create. What did you learn about mental health while making the film? Oh, my goodness. This was a huge, huge area for so many people that we spoke with. The mental health aspects, and especially with teenagers, is really one of the big, big concerns in all of this. I'm 36 years old. I grew up in an era before social media. I got social media in college. So when I got onto social media my prefrontal cortex was fully developed. This place in our brain of higher rational thought. We are bombarding our youth with these technologies while they're still in their developmental phases of life, while their brain is still forming, while their social relationships is still forming. And we're training youth around certain behaviors and actions around how society values them or appreciates them. And when, when they spend their lives, I mean, I've heard stories of, of youth spending 12 hours, like 12 hours a day on social media. And I, it boggles my mind how, how you can spend that much time, but you're the, the house of mirrors that you're surrounding yourself with. If that's your worldview on a daily basis as a 12 year old or a 16 year old, um, how does that reshape the way you think of yourself and the way you compare yourself to others? Whether it's seeing body images of other people and their self comparison there, or um, I mean, th then this goes into a whole other uh, bunch of aspects that happen online in terms of online bullying, but it really is morphing an entire generation. And it's not just about these individuals or just kids. Let's get back to this idea of a climate change of society. Um, it struck me that the experts in your film say that the echo chambers and those house of mirrors, the misinformation that thrives in social media, it's actually by design. Here's Sandy Parakilis, a former product manager at Facebook, and Tristan Harris. We've created a system that, that biases towards false information. Not because we want to, but because false information makes the companies more money than the truth. The truth is boring. 
It's a disinformation for profit business model. You make money the more you allow unregulated messages to reach anyone for the best price. Jeff, did that surprise you? Yeah, I, I think, you know, when I was a very, very active user of social media, I was very accustomed to just seeing all the stuff that was coming in and embracing it. And when I started learning about this and I could step back and remove myself from being like a node in the system and I could step back and look at the whole system as a whole, I picture all of these nodes that are interconnected where the incentive of the algorithm is to get as many people to post as many things to as many other people to get as much engagement as possible. The bigger we grow the network, the more conversation, the more chatter we have, the more money we make. And all of that from a very rational algorithm perspective has nothing to do with truth. It has nothing to do with values. Nothing is fact-checked in the system, right? Every, anything inbound, anything that's coming into the system. When you look at journalism, journalists are trained to fact-check their stories before they publish. There's built-in friction to make sure that the content is accurate. And if it's inaccurate, journalists run a fact-check, uh, a, a correction afterwards. Um, these systems are designed around user-generated content. Everybody, give us anything you got. Like, literally, we'll take anything you got and we'll show it to a bunch of people and see what sticks. And if it sticks, we'll upvote it and we'll show it to more people. And if it's really, really problematic, then, you know, the content moderators come in and step in and, and filter it. But it is a completely different system that doesn't value truth. It doesn't value society's values. It really is this mindset of let's figure out what gets you to come back and what gets you to stay. And whatever gets you to come back and gets you to stay more is going to be beneficial to the system. And that's where, for some people, it might be a political content on a particular worldview. For me, it was political content. Political content got me really, really heavily stuck to Facebook in the 2016 election. And I could see friends arguing. I could see friends that very much agreed about things arguing over tiny little things and like hurting friendships because of uh, different information that each of them was seeing. You know, I've been starting to recommend to people, if there's somebody in your life that you disagree with, you know, take their phone and show them your phone and look at their feed and show them your feed and have a conversation around how you have completely different facts that you're operating off of because you're shown very, very different stories. And that's what the algorithms tend toward. That's what creates success for an algorithm. It's more and more engagement. The, the film originally premiered at Sundance Film Festival in January. The version released on Netflix this month talks about dealing with misinformation online during the pandemic. So tell me about the yeah. process of updating the film for its release on yeah. Netflix this month. Yeah, we, even while we were at Sundance, we knew that there were some tweaks that we wanted to make. And then we were making those revisions and then COVID started and we were like on the fence and do we want to make even more changes. And then uh, it was clear in March, April, you know, that this was was picking up and it was a, a huge, huge story. And we were able to add a scene in the film talking about COVID misinformation and tying in misinformation, not just around flat earth and the countless other conspiracy theories that happen online, um, but tying in misinformation around COVID as well and the health and life and death implications that this can have. And there's a lot of doom and gloom here, but what solutions do the tech folks that you interviewed offer? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think actually the many of the technologists that we've spoken to are optimistic. One of our subjects, Jaron Lanier, he had this great line. He's like, people call me pes a pessimist, but I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm an optimist. I believe things can be better. 
it's the complacent people. It's the ones who are happy with the status quo. They're the true pessimists. And that line always stuck with me. It just really, really resonated because I, I think there's a space for criticism here to make the platforms better, to hold them to account. You know, ultimately, this is just code written by people. You know, the code can be changed. The code could be modified. We can reprogram the software and hopefully that has a shift on our society. You know, I often draw this analogy to climate change. Many years ago, we discovered these resources in the ground. And if we extracted those resources, we could make this, you know, these engines and these motors that could have great power. We could travel, we could fly. And only years later did we discover the consequences of that business model. And here we have a similar thing. Like we found this business model of advertising where we could, as it turns out, extract human experience from, uh, from their day-to-day -day experience. And we can turn that into this business model and we can make hundreds of billions of dollars. And years later, we've discovered the consequences of it. In the case of climate change, however, we've built this massive physical infrastructure around the world. That's a, that's a big challenge to shift. But in the case of our technology, you know, a handful of programmers, a handful of engineers and CEOs could say, no, we don't want this business model. We're going to move away from this business model. This is how we're going to transition. And this is how we're going to get off of extracting data from the public. We're going to make tools and services that are in the public's interest. That's what we want to do. And I could see that transition happening. Um, and that's something that brings me a lot of hope and optimism is that really at the end of the day, um, this is software and we can change the code. So there's a hopeful takeaway. It does not have to be this way. Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Jeff Orlovsky of Boulder directed The Social Dilemma, a documentary that explores the dystopian side of social media. It's streaming on Netflix. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today. You can get Colorado Matters anytime on demand. Just ask your smart speaker to play the podcast Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News. <laughs>